There's no real consensus uh, on exactly which word is the most common first word for a baby. Um, But I I think as parents, we all have a pretty good idea what what tops the list. Um, We all hope, of course, for mama or dada or something sweet like that. It's Father's Day. It should be dad, right? Um, Sometimes we get that blessing. Um, but even if it is mama or dada, there, there's always another word that is, that is close behind, uh, not quite as endearing. Anyone want to take a guess at what that word is going to be? No. No. That's, that's like number one, number two, maybe number three. Why no? Why not yes? Why not please? Why not may I take a nap now? Why no? But there it is, time and time again. I think one of the reasons, probably that's the word they hear the most often for the first, what, 10, 10 years of their life? I only, I only, 10 years my oldest, so I don't know if it keeps going from there. Um, but that's the word they hear, right? No, don't touch that. No, don't eat that. No, don't go there. Um, and the reason they hear it so often is the same reason they're so driven to say it so early, because we are born as and grow increasingly into self-reliant people, aren't we? We, we want to be our own. We want to make our own choices. We want to do our own thing. That simple no soon gives way to the little more confident, little more demanding my do it. And we've all been through that stage. Uh, we're rebellious. And it's truly amazing. Few animals are as pathetic, if we're honest, as a human infant. Um, Mark's got a bunch of cows out at his place. What are they, like a half hour? And they're up running around and grab a snack from mom. And then they're off to play with their friends. Um, you know, you, you give a, a human child three years. And, and it takes him half an hour just to put his jacket on backwards and upside down. And if he were to make it outside, he would freeze to death. Um, we're helpless. But there we are. My do it. I want to do it. I want to have control. I want to do it my way. That drive is, is right at the heart of our rebellion against God. And it's deeply rooted in, in our sinful nature. We want to be self-determined. We want to be self-reliant and, and self-sufficient. But we were created to be God-determined and God-reliant and God-sufficient. Now, the Lord knows this. And Paul knows this. And, and even as believers, we have that tendency. We have that nature in us that continues to rear its head. And so I think that's exactly why uh, Ephesians chapter 6 takes the turn that it does. Um, We invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 18 to 20. Um, If you don't have a Bible on you, um, go ahead and slip up your hand. One of our ushers will be sure to grab you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap um, that you can see Um, That this is not about my wisdom. This is not about anything I have to say, um, but about God's word. Um, If we look at verses 10 to 17, the last few weeks we've been going through the the armor of God. These six elements that are so essential in combating Satan, combating the enemy's lies and walking in obedience to God. And then directly following that, Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, calls us to prayer. Because he knows this tendency in us. He knows how likely we are to read through this passage of the armor of God and and to read, stand firm then and take up the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And and then what do we do? We push God away. We say, I might do it now. I got those things. Now I have control. Now I'll do it. 
I don't want your help, God. Uh, I'm strong enough. Let me, let, me just, let me just get this belt on. Let me, let me just figure out how to wear this breastplate. Uh, we want to leave God out of it. And that's just naturally how we tend to gravitate as humans because of that sinful nature in us. But you'll notice Paul spends a total of four verses on six elements of the armor of God and then three entire verses following on prayer. It's a little lopsided. He wants us to get this. So let's read this passage. Let me read for you. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul's not left behind the idea of spiritual warfare, not at all. Uh, if you remember the last week we looked at the, the verbs of this passage, we'll, we'll step back into nerd territory here a little bit. Um, the first command is this imperative verb, verse 14, stand, stand, uh, stand firm, hold your ground. And the next four pieces, the first four pieces of that armor of God are, are participles, are, are couched in participular phrases. Um, it's describing how do you stand. So stand firm, having the belt of truth, having the breastplate of righteousness, having the shoes of the gospel of peace, having the shield of faith. And then the next command shows up there in verse 17. It's take, pick up. He switches from defensive to offensive. Here's how we fight that battle. Take up the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the Spirit. And then in verse 18, you'll notice there's not a new main verb here again. He's not making a new command. He's not starting a new section. Um, it's two more participles. It's a describing word. Here's the manner in which, here's how you wear that armor of God. Here's how you take up those weapons of warfare. You do it in prayer. You do it praying at all times. There's the first participle. And a little further down is keeping alert. He's referring to prayer. Paul's singular focus here, this new uh, emphasis is, is pray, 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 pray. Yes, put on that armor of God. Take up these different things to fight this battle and do it continually in prayer. And, and as Paul gives this command, what he gives us at the same time is kind of this anatomy of warfare prayer. What does it mean to, to be engaged in prayerful spiritual warfare what does warfare prayer look like seems to me if you were to scan the christian bookshelves this this one would up your your uh your book to the bestseller list wow warfare prayer that's exciting that's interesting we want we want to think about that um and i think if you've been with us through this series on spiritual warfare um, i think you're getting the idea spiritual warfare is not some crazy subset of the Christian life. It's not this one little element. It is the Christian life. Spiritual warfare that Paul's been talking about here is, is knowing the gospel. It's believing these truths that he's laid out in chapters 1 to 3 and, and holding to them firmly, not being pulled aside by the lies of 
the enemy and, and trusting God and living in that transformed life of obedience in the gospel that are laid out in chapters 4, 5, and 6 against all of this opposition as the world screams out, that's foolish as our own sinful heart says, no, I'm going to do it my way. I don't trust you, God. That's spiritual warfare that we say, no, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to rest in Him. So spiritual warfare prayer then is Christian prayer. It's understanding the Christian life, that life of faith and obedience. It's it's not about coasting. It's not an easy life. It's not about a a peaceful stroll in the park. Paul's saying "This this is war here that we're talking about. Paul gives us five descriptors of this warfare prayer, real life, serious business Christian prayer. So first, verse 14, warfare prayer is praying dependently. It's dependent prayer. It really is kind of redundant. Um, Prayer at its root is dependence. It's exactly why Paul's calling us to prayer here, to, to warn us. Don't, don't think you can just take up these things and, and wield them on your own. Don't think that, that the armor of God on its own is enough. Don't think that what you need are the gifts without the giver. You can't separate the two. So, so take up the armor of God, absolutely. Set your mind in those, those things, your heart in those things, praying at all times, saturated in prayer. The word time here is kairos again, as we saw in verse 4. It speaks of opportunity. It speaks of every, every situation. In every different situation you find yourself in, be praying. As you face this spiritual battle, as you fight against the, the onslaught of lies and the pressure of a, of a culture that is against the gospel, as you take up each of these pieces of armor, do it with prayer. Do it depending on God, resting in Him. At all times. There's a number of verses that that call us to pray frequently. Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Romans 12.12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. But I think the problem is, as we look at those verses, we often get prayer wrong. We think of prayer as a chore. Or we think of prayer as something that I do for God. It's something I accomplish. And, and we have this pride about us. I pray every day. I pray three times a day. Or we have a guilt. I don't pray enough. I don't do that for God. He must be disappointed in me. But we get prayer entirely wrong. We, we fail to see prayer as relational. Prayer as dependent. It's an expression of our need. We think we're strong because we pray rather than recognizing that we are so weak. We need to pray. We need to rely on Him. We need to stay connected to Him. That's why we pray, Paul says, in the Spirit. It's personal. It's relational. It's this deep, meaningful fellowship with God. Remember Ephesians 2.18. Paul said, through Him, that's Jesus, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. In the Holy Spirit, we have access to the Father. We have fellowship with God. That's what it means to pray in the Spirit. It's rich, meaningful, relational dependence. And we come to that fellowship with all prayer and supplication. Um, prayer in the English is very much the same as prayer in the Greek. It simply means to ask. 
That's the old English word, pray. I, I pray you. I ask you. I beg you. I plead with you. Supplication um, in the Greek here basically just speaks of our need. Bring to God your lack, your needs. Bring to him your weakness, your emptiness. Praying in the Spirit on every occasion, bringing to him your need for him. It's the dependence. And, and really it's the difference between dead legalism, false religion, what often sadly passes for Christianity and, and true living faith, right? I mean, it would be totally possible. And I think we sadly see this often enough. Someone that understands the Bible, someone that talks the Christian talk, they understand the, the armor of God. They've read those passages. They know that. They'll, they'll talk about it. They may even wax eloquent about the breastplate of righteousness. They have no relationship with God. There's no life there. There's no true dependence on Him and walk with Him. That's what faith is. Listen to Matthew 7, 22. Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out many demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's about knowing Jesus. More importantly, it's about him knowing you. It has nothing to do with, I go to church, I read the Bible, I call myself a Christian, I pray three times a day. If your prayer is something you do as a, as a chore, something that you see as a job that you do for God, think you understand Christianity. You may find yourself in this place saying, Lord, look at all these things that I did for you. I prayed all the time as a, as a chore, as a duty, as something to, to show you how good I was. And, and I think there's a high probability that Jesus would say, but, but I didn't know you. You didn't relate to me. You weren't being dependent on me. It's radically different. It's a terrifying statement for those of us who find ourselves in church on a regular basis, just kind of stumbling along, there's, there's that possibility. You need to depend on him. That's, again, that's what faith is. That's what Christianity is. Depending on God, resting in him, walking with him, coming to him constantly and personally. Desperate and needy. Prayer, prayer is not for the strong. Warfare prayers for the weak, for the desperate. And, and if you don't see yourself in that light, uh, again, I don't know that you understand Christianity. This is what it means to be, as Paul introduced this section in, in verse 10, being strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So warfare prayer, first and foremost, is dependent on God. Secondly, warfare prayer means praying urgently and persistently. These two go together. Uh, it's the second half of verse 18. Paul says we ought to pray keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It's this pair, keeping alert with all perseverance. They, they complement each other. Um, keeping alert speaks of, of urgency. Literally, it means lying awake. Jesus uses the same word as he commands his disciples regarding his return. He says in, in Mark 13, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know the time, when the time will come. He's saying, I'm coming back. Be diligent, be eager, waiting for that day. Stay awake. 
The ideas of a soldier on the, on the watch through the night. The other soldiers are sleeping peacefully, but he keeps awake. He is scanning the horizon. He's ready to jump into action at any moment to blow the horn, sound the warning. Uh, stay awake in prayer. Some, sometimes we need that uh, literally as a command. Don't, don't fall asleep. Um, but the idea here is to pray with urgency. Pray as if it actually matters. How often do we get into those habits? We, we begin to think like it's peacetime. We begin to think that, 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 that our walk with God ought to be a stroll through the park. Just pray casually, relaxed prayers. And at peacetime, you, you might. You might just sit out on the grass and talk for hours, meandering conversation about nothing in particular. But it's very different at war. Isn't it? I mean, it's a very different world. John Piper uses great illustration about prayers. It's not a, a peacetime intercom to ask for more pillows in the den. No, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie calling for reinforcements and air support. It's that kind of desperate prayer that Paul's talking about here. Do we pray with that kind of urgency? Do we pray as if our prayers really matter? Or do we just kind of read through the list or meander on. But urgency is not the only descriptor here. Um, warfare prayer is also persistent prayer. It's urgent without letting up. Um, I, I cannot for the life of me remember where I heard this story. Maybe one of you will recognize it, but uh, it was a track and field runner. And uh, if I remember correctly, he was running a longer race than he was used to running. He kind of changed categories and and uh, running actually has a lot of strategy to it, apparently. Uh, you want to stay near the front, but not too far ahead. You don't want to burn yourself out at the beginning. You kind of pace yourself and save that little bit. And, and to make that move, to, to break for the front at just the right time. Uh, you don't want to wait too long or the others are breaking and getting ahead. You'll never catch them. Um, but you, you don't want to go too soon and, and burn yourself out. And so he was... Uh, an underdog in this race and, and became the unexpected winner. And, and the interviewer was asking him after the race, what was your strategy? How did you, how did you win? What was your, your game plan through the race? And, and, and his answer went something along the lines of this. He said, well, for the first leg of the race, I gave everything. And I ran as fast as I could. And then for the second leg, I really went for it. I ran as fast as I could. And then the third leg, I gave 100%. And I ran as fast as I could. So we won, ran the whole time. It's that persistent urgency. It's an urgency that continues on. That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul is calling us to here in prayer. Luke 18, Jesus tells the, the parable of the persistent widow. And, and Luke introduces that story saying in, in Luke 18, 1, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Continuing to pray without losing heart. And then Jesus closes the parable in verse 7 saying, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? How many of us pray that way? How many of us really engage with God crying out to him day and night? Maybe we pray about something the first time and we're pretty engaged and it's important to us and, and we're passionate about it, but the third time, the fourth time, the 27th time, it just becomes another item on the list. And do we really expect God to do anything? Are we really even asking him anymore? Are we just kind of mentally rattling off? 
becomes routine. Jesus is saying we have to cry out to God day and night, consistent urgency. Paul is saying pray with urgency and persistence. That's what warfare prayer looks like. That's what, what our prayer looks like if we understand the onslaught against us in this fallen world. It's the kind of prayer that God answers, the prayer that we care about, the prayer that we continue to bring to Him. So pray dependently, then pray urgently and and persistently, bringing it to God. Thirdly, warfare prayer is praying corporately, or maybe we could say universally. At the end of verse 18, he says we ought to be making supplication for all the saints. Praying with this dependent, urgent, persistent prayer for the whole church. One of the themes of the book of Ephesians is it's not just about you. It's not just about us as individual believers. We get so caught up in this kind of North American, it's just me and Jesus thing. And that's, that's not what the Bible talks about primarily. It's the church. That's what God is doing. That's what Christ is building. Ephesians 2.15 talks about the church as this one new man in the place of two, no more split between Jews and Gentiles, but one unified people, the church, the household of God built together on the the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. 3 verse 10 says that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Um, This is the display of Christ's victory. It's the gathered church. That's why as he gets into chapter 4, he focuses so much on on the unity of the church. And then here in in this context of spiritual warfare, you'll remember um, this idea of the the phalanx warfare, the the soldiers lined up in row after row, shoulder to shoulder, advancing forward. That's what Paul is referencing as he talks about the armor of God. Specifically, as we talked about the shield of faith, the the Roman soldiers would would line up shoulder to shoulder, but having the shield in their left hand and the sword in their right hand, their right side is then partially exposed, unprotected. And so each soldier was responsible partially to cover themselves and partially to cover the man to their left with their shield. It was a joint effort as they worked together. So those two front lines would meet, and the first part of that battle was just a head-to-head Push. And the, the rows back, three and four men would be pushing against the backs of the men in front of them, trying to break that front line, trying to collapse that unified front. And if you could pierce through the enemy's unified front, you, you'd all but won. You could then begin to dismantle their army. And so the strength of that whole structure of warfare was unity. It was standing Together, that's why Paul commands in the armor of God here, stand, stand firm, hold your ground, keep the line. We're at war here together. We're united. The victory of Christ, the glory of Christ is displayed not just in individual Christians, but in the church standing unified as a whole. In Ephesians 3.21, says, To Him be the glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. First Peter 5 reminds us of the need to, to fight this spiritual warfare, remembering others, remembering our, our brothers. He says, resist him, speaking of the devil, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. So we ought to pray dependently and urgently with persistence and then 
universally, praying for the church. We stand together in this. Pray for our church. Pray for Harvest. But remember, we're connected with First Baptist and Home Church and Garrington and St. Andrew's Presbyterian. We are the church together. We're not at war with them. We're together. They're our brothers, sisters. We're not isolated. There are other expressions of this worldwide church. There is only one church, the body of Christ. So pray for the church. Pray that we all would stand firm together. Pray for your brothers and sisters around the world who suffer all kinds of different persecutions that that we know nothing of in North America. Pray for the church as a whole. Pray that the church would stand firm against the lies of the devil. Hold fast against the pressure of, of culture and politics to withstand the onslaught of false teaching that is so prevalent around our world. Because we're not the only ones here dependent on God. If the church as a whole is going to survive, if the church is going to stand firm in its faith, if the church is going to be purified and holy, set apart to the glory of Christ, that's going to be a miraculous work of God, and it will be to His glory. Pray for the church. Pray for the church corporately. But then Paul transitions, reminds us, verse 19, to pray for him individually. Warfare prayer is praying also specifically. He says, pray also for me. The words may be given me in opening my mouth to proclaim boldly the mystery of the gospel. So he's saying, yeah, pray for the church. Pray for the whole church. Pray for the the strength of the church. And then pray for me. Pray for me specifically. Pray for me individually. Making supplication and requests for other believers. Do you pray for other people? Look around, church. This is us. We are at war together. This is your battalion. We're together in this shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm. And if one of these soldiers here goes down, if one of these is wounded or falls or becomes distracted or broken by false teaching, that hurts all of us. We feel that as a body. Are you covering the person beside you? Are you employing your faith on their behalf, on the behalf of specific people to help protect, to strengthen those around you, to build and strengthen the the integrity of the church? We need to hold this line together. And you're not just responsible for you. We're responsible for those around us. We're we're in this together. It seems maybe a little bit cyclical, but I've been praying this week that God would move in some of your hearts and that he would use this this passage to to raise up people in our church that would pray for the individuals in our church, that we would be a church that prays for one another consistently. And at least a few of you would feel that draw, would feel the weight of this and say, "That, that can be my role. I can do that. I can be one of those who is praying for the people here. Week in and week out. Uh, we, we gather together to build one another up. We ought to be praying for each other consistently. If you look back through history, uh, every great revival, every great missions movement started with the people of God on their knees, sometimes two or three, just beginning to pray, God, would you do something? Would you build your church? There would be huge potential right here 
we would spend time on our knees, if we would be characterized by this kind of urgent, persistent, dependent prayer. So if the Lord is nudging you on that this morning, and I pray that he is, please join me. Let's be praying for the fellowship here, praying for the church worldwide, praying for our church and praying specifically for the individuals that you see around you. If you're wondering why you got a list of names on a chunk of paper on the way in, I hope you got one. Um, That's why. Stick it in your Bible. Stick it on your bedside table, whatever it takes. Pray. Pray for the people on that list. And I'm going to say, I did this a little while back. I didn't hear back, but I'm sure I've forgotten somebody. I'm sure somebody's been missed. Um, Sorry. Pray for me. I have a bad memory. Um, There's room there. Write names in as you think of them. Um, But use that as a starting point. Just pray your way through that list. Pick pick one person a day, three people a day. Pray for the whole list every day. Um, Let's pray for the brothers and sisters around us. And then maybe I'm going to take a cue from Paul here and uh, just be a little selfish and say, pray for me. Pray for me specifically. Um, I know there are some that pray for me uh, faithfully, and I so, so appreciate that. Um, not that I'm anybody special, but Satan knows. If he can get your pastor to fall, if he can deceive and mislead the shepherd, or if he can even just kind of undercut the, the boldness and the confidence of the preacher, that trickle-down effect is huge. That affects the whole church. Satan loves nothing more than to have a whole congregation of believers sitting under the teaching of a man who's conflicted about his sermon because he's been battling all week with the sin that he's supposed to be preaching against. Or who's weak in his words because, because he doubts the truthfulness of God's word or because his, he doubts the trustworthiness of God's character. Who's completely unwittingly bought into the wisdom of this world. And rather than boldly proclaiming God's truth, he's just regurgitating the wisdom of the world with a, a veneer of Bible references. Or maybe he knows the truth, but the pressures of the world around the political correctness culture, um, the threat of making himself a target of, of activism and outrage is just a little more than he's willing to risk. And so he's timid and hesitant. It's my heart's desire to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel to you as I ought. That's, that's my life's goal, to be able to say with Paul at the end of my life, Acts 20, 27, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. But I am not immune to a single one of, of those temptations that I just listed and countless others. I, I'm weak, I'm tempted, I'm insecure, just like anyone else. Pray that I would be faithful. Pray that God would strengthen me. Pray for your own good, for the good of the church, the glory of Christ. But I wouldn't falter in, in what God has called me to do in, in preaching his word. If you want to pray even more specifically than that, pray for me according to this passage right here. Pray that I would boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel in spite of any and all opposition. If you really want to get particular, look up the verse that I'm going to be preaching next Sunday or any particular Sunday. What a, what a blessing that would be. Just look up that passage. Pray that God would be applying those verses in my own life and in the lives of our people. Pray that I would understand those verses, that I would be bold to proclaim the particular truths in those verses. And that I would have the boldness to proclaim them. 
pray for your pastor. I already kind of bled into the last descriptor here of warfare prayer. Finally, Paul, in looking at what this prayer is to look like, is showing us that, that warfare prayer uh, is praying spiritually. It's praying spiritually. Um, verses 19 and 20, let me read them and, and I'll show you what I mean by that. Pray also for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. All prayers spiritual. We're praying to God who is spirit. We pray in the spirit. But by saying warfare prayer is spiritual prayer, specifically what I mean is that it's prayer concerning asking for spiritual things. Remember, we're talking about spiritual warfare. That's the emphasis here. Verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the battle we're fighting. Now, I get it. We live in physical bodies, in a physical world, and and much of the pain and the fear that we face is related to physical issues. It's pretty natural that we gravitate to physical prayers. We aren't in a physical war. We're in a spiritual war. And the more we focus only on the physical, more we give ground on that much more important war. The prayer that Paul is calling for here is is spiritual warfare prayer. It's prayer that, that ought to accompany the armor of God as we go into this spiritual battle. So sure, pray for healing. Pray that God would provide money to those that need it, a new car, a new job, a suitable place to live, uh, pray for protection. Those are good and fine things to pray for. Don't, don't hear me saying that they're not. God cares about those things. We ought to pray for those things. But we need to understand those are secondary things. They're secondary things. That's not our greatest need. They're not the things that God is primarily concerned with. They're not the prayers that God answers most often. They're often things that God leaves unanswered because he has a more important, more significant goal that he's after. And Very often, God does not remove those physical trials because those are precisely the tool that he's using in our hearts to bring about the spiritual goals that he desires. Look at Paul's own situation here. He, he refers to himself as an ambassador in chains. It's an oxymoron there. It's a, it's a logical impossibility. An ambassador was a political representative sent from one country to another. Um, you could kick an ambassador out if you didn't want them in your country, if you didn't like his message. But the one thing you were not to do was to arrest them, to, to detain them, to put them in chains. The ambassador had political immunity. You don't do that. And Paul is an ambassador of Christ sent into this world with the gospel, it's a position of honor and, and respect and dignity, and yet he has been horribly dishonored and insulted, treated like no ambassador should ever be treated. And as he writes this letter, he's not speaking metaphorically about being an ambassador in chains. That's not just cute language. He is literally physically chained to a Roman soldier who was guarding him as he awaited his trial before Nero. 
And if you're familiar with Nero's life, uh, Nero was at the point where he was beginning to just go crazy with suspicion of anyone who would threaten his power, his authority. And uh, Paul on trial before Nero, standing and saying, Jesus is Lord, when the Roman mantra that they repeated was Caesar is Lord, it was not going to go well for Paul. And yet look what Paul does not ask for. He says, pray for me, and he does not say, pray that I would be released. He doesn't say, pray that I would be protected. He doesn't even ask for it. He says, in spite of the fact that I am in chains and likely about to die, pray that I would have boldness to proclaim the gospel. Pray that I would have the faith to sign my own death warrant. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Pray that I would have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. So just be honest, if, if you were to open your Bible tomorrow morning and you look down at that prayer list and, well, we're just getting started, so you're in the A's and, and, and you see Andrew Braun and Arnold Penner and Apostle Paul. Well, how should we pray for Paul? I remember he said he's something about he was in prison, I think, and uh, waiting a court date. God, please set Paul free. Pray that you would uh, help his court date to come soon and that things would go well. That he'd get back to life as normal. Those are the kinds of things that we would pray about. And Paul says, don't worry about that. That's secondary. That's, that's not what I'm interested in. That's not what I'm worried about. That's not even worth mentioning. Pray for my heart. Pray for my spirit. Pray for my obedience. Spiritual warfare prayer is very different. God, give Paul the readiness, that foundation that comes from the gospel of peace. You have the confidence in his heart that he has peace with you. That he would know that everything happening to him comes through your gracious hand. The confidence to stand firm in his conviction. Give Paul the, the, field, the, the shield of faith. That his heart would be so filled with the confidence that you reward those who seek you. That one day he will be vindicated. That his honor uh, will be given to him because of his disgrace for the sake of the gospel. That he would have hope and confidence in you. Give him the helmet of salvation that he would be assured again that Christ has won. That he is part of this company of the redeemed and that he will have ultimate victory in Christ. Lord, give him the sword of the Spirit. Help him every day to have your word at hand for the right situation. Instead of saying, praying that Paul might be released, we would pray, Lord, Paul, give Paul the armor of God that he might stand firm in boldness and die for the sake of the gospel. That's, that's spiritual warfare prayer. That's the kind of prayer that we ought to pray for one another frequently. It's the kind of prayers that the Holy Spirit has inspired throughout Scripture as we read through these great prayers of the New Testament. Let me just pull up a handful of prayers from Paul. Listen to these. Listen to the armor of God through these. This is the kind of prayers that Paul prays for the church. The Holy Spirit through Paul prays. 1 Thessalonians 3. 12 to 13, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. 
as we do for you, that you may, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 17 to 19. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Do you see the spiritual warfare in there? Do you see the emphasis with which he prays? It's the armor of God through every line. Use those passages as you pray. We need to let the Bible teach us how to pray for one another. If you want a couple others, um, you can look at Colossians 1, 9 to 12, uh, Ephesians 3, 16 to 19, Philippians 1, 9, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 to 9. I'll have Matt just leave those up on the screen if people want to jot those down. Those are the kinds of prayers we ought to pray for one another. That ought to, to saturate our hearts and our minds. We ought to pray them dependently and urgently and persistently. Pray for the church. Pray for the worldwide church. Pray for our church. Pray for the people in our church. That's what spiritual warfare prayer ought to look like. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. God, first and foremost, we just ask that you would forgive us for our independent hearts, that we are so quick to want to push you off and to live our lives our own way according to our own wisdom for our own glory. Lord, would you, would you break that in us? Would you root that out of our hearts? God, that we would come to you in dependence and desperation. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the reality of prayer, help us to see our desperate need for prayer, that it would lead us to praying urgently and persistently, that we would be passionate in prayer. God, that we would cry out to you day and night. Lord, that our prayers would be rightly directed toward the church and toward one another. God, I pray that you would make us a people who prays for one another. Lord, would you raise up a few in our fellowship now, even now, that would say, I can do that. And, and would see the desperate need there and that we would begin to pray for one another and encourage one another in prayer. And Lord, that our prayers would be rich in the way that you have called us to pray. Seeing what is most important, seeing the spiritual reality that is so needed, seeing the armor of God that we need Lord, so much more than just the physical. God, again, that your church would be built up and that as you build your church through prayer, that you would get all the glory. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's close in song together.